So this is actually a first for the Startup Diary because I have the pleasure of introducing Tom Hunt from Virtual Valley onto our show. Our podcast is focused around the journey of how our startup began, so this is a very unique opportunity to hear from someone else who, as it turns out, shared a very similar journey. I'm going to take a step back on this one and let you, our listeners here, Adam, ask Tom about how he found his calling as an entrepreneur, how he himself has developed as his company has grown, and how creating his own podcast is really helping him focus on the metrics that really matter to his company. Listeners, believe me when I say you're in for a treat. So Tom, welcome to the Startup Diary. It's fantastic to have you here. This is going to actually be the first guest interview um, from anyone that's not within our team that goes live uh, on our podcast. So uh, yeah, thanks very much for joining us, Mike. I am honoured. It is such a pleasure to be part of this Northern podcast. No, it's great. I really appreciate it. So before we get into it, just give um, the listeners an idea of who Tom is, uh, what you're currently working on, um, and then we'll try and kind of break that down to how you actually got here. So I am now I'm fully confident in saying that I'm an internet entrepreneur and currently I'm working, I spend the majority of my time working on a marketplace called Virtual Valley where we connect entrepreneurs and virtual assistants. Okay, I was actually just going to then say, okay, let's just start, go with where you started, but I actually want to jump on the fact that you said you're fully confident to say you're an internet yeah. entrepreneur. Does that mean there was a point in life where you classed yourself as an internet entrepreneur but kind of didn't have the confidence behind it? What was the hesitation there? Yeah, so I left the cover world a year ago and I was, I had a, an outsourced service company. So I was just connecting startups and people in the Philippines in search systems. And I had an e-commerce store that sold male leggings and I had like a blog, but I didn't feel like I was truly an internet entrepreneur until I started the marketplace. I, I can't really put my finger on why that is, but now I have this sort of all this code sat on this hosting account that I'm accountable for and people are coming to the, onto the platform and connecting with each other through the internet now i feel that i am an internet entrepreneur is it because it's kind of like not this um singular transaction e-commerce someone buys and disappears is it because of the marketplace environment that virtual valley is that you feel a bit more i don't know robust as a business on the internet yeah for sure and the fact that we spend six months building this thing as opposed to just throwing up a wordpress blog on a domain that can take 30 minutes Okay. Yeah. No, fair enough. So we kind of know where you are today, Virtual Valley. Let's just break it down a little bit in terms of when did your entrepreneurial journey start? So um, how did this itch that every entrepreneur has, when did that kick in? So we're going to go back four years. Okay. And I'm 22. From zero years old to 22 years old, I can't remember having an entrepreneurial bone in my body. I don't remember thinking about starting a business like my friends would sell watches on eBay and I think in my mind that's not for me I'm going to be a chemist I'm going to be a businessman so I up until 22 like followed the rules so I studied chemistry I went to work for a big four accounting firm I switched jobs to Accenture a management consulting firm and then that brings us up to now so we're on the bus four years ago I'm 22 I'm just wearing tights because I've been to a Halloween party with my best friend and just as a joke, I say to him, we should sell these tights for men because we look good and we felt good. <laughs> he actually said, yes, but we're going to have to sell leggings because these are see-through. 
And then, as you may know, Adam, that most sort of business ideas that you talk about with your friends, like you, you usually they, you talk about it for half an hour and then it won't go anywhere. This was different because the next day we actually got on eBay, purchased some female leggings. Adam delivered to our house in East London, drew on our, our male logo and took them to Brick Lane Market to try and sell these leggings for men, this new thing, male <laughs> leggings. So we had eight hours in the cold of the 22nd of December, 2012. How many out of the 18 pairs in stock do you think that we sold? So it was that 18 pairs in stock? 18, yes. You had a stand at Brick Lane with 18, <laughs> 18 units. Okay. Yeah, so we had, we had 18 units. So we had a DJ and we had drinks. It was like a party. It was a really good market store. Sounds like you spent more on the production than you did <laughs> on the actual stock, which is awesome. It's marketing. Right. Uh, just because I know where this kind of ended up, I'm going to presume that you sold at least... I'm going to say you sold out. I'm just going to have the confidence in you at this point. Hey. I'm going to say you sold out. <laughs> we sold zero pairs. Oh! <laughs> okay. no. However, we, we were walking home and we decided to persevere and we set up an e-commerce store. And then in March 2013, and it, so we're actually getting somewhere with this story, we sell our first pair of male leggings that we designed and manufactured to actually be male leggings to someone... Can I just jump in and stop you there? Sorry to jump in. Yeah. There's a lot that's just happened. Firstly, I've just made a, <laughs> I made a quick note. You said yeah. there's both of you on a bus, and then you have this idea. And I, I know I walk to the gym with uh, one of my colleagues uh, and best mate nearly every day, and we come up with ideas still every single morning. Um, but nothing happens from them. You're right. Who who was the driving factor between you and your mate to make this happen? Because I think one of one of the team needs to say, actually, let's do this. That's a very good question, and I w I'm going to say it was me. Okay. Now, my friend, who like they're, they're actually two co-founders, because our other friend came to London the, just before we were going to do the market stall. So, and he started getting involved, and he was really good, so he joined. But I, I think it was actually me that got on eBay and actually purchased these female leggings because my friend, like he, he's awesome and really good, but he, I, I don't think he was excited enough about having the market store. Okay. Well, I've, I've already heard so far in the show that the idea of selling watches on eBay was not exciting for you. And then all of a sudden you're at a market stall in Brick Lane. What, what happened? Was it, what happened on that bus that just made the penny drop? Do you remember? Is there anything that we can try and take away from it? Yeah. yeah. I, yeah I, I'm going to be brutally honest here. It's probably not the answer that you're looking for, but I think the main reason that we actually went ahead and did the market stall and the whole reason this entrepreneurial journey for me kickstarted was because we wanted to chat up girls on Brick Lane Market. That's exactly the answer that I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, it's just really interesting. Uh, and the idea of using um, male leggings to chat up girls on Brick Lane, um, I don't yeah. know, it just paints a nice picture in my head. So, um, so I mean things manufactured i've just i wrote yeah. down manufactured and i've got four question marks next to it how do you know at this point how to get male leggings with your own designs manufactured i don't think we so we'd never none of us had ever done anything like that before so this was after the market store we're still confident in the idea i think yeah i, I don't think anyone had experience i think we just literally went on the internet and googled like how to manufacture leggings found Alibaba, which is an awesome site, and spent hours searching through different manufacturers on Alibaba, finally came down to a shortlist of 
people that could actually make the leggings sent over our designs and then finally had them delivered. I'm already picking up on how you end up at Virtual Rally just from the way that you explain that. The fact that you went to a marketplace, had to spend hours trying to find just one person that could do the job. It's not a curated marketplace. And I know that's what you're really delivering the value on, on Virtual Rally. Do you think, am I connecting the dots where there were no dots or is this sort of the seed? So I'd never, like potentially subconsciously, like I do get frustrated with marketplaces when I want to get something done and it's just taking me too long. Now, I don't remember when considering building the curated marketplace for Virtual Valley back to this time on Alibaba. I do link that to spending a lot of time on Upwork and a lot of time on Freelancer. But yeah, potentially subconsciously, Adam. Perfect. So you get these male leggings manufactured. What's the next step? What happens? So yeah, we, we throw up this e-commerce store and we start, we make a Facebook page and we invite all our friends. Um, and I'm trying to think how we, the marketing channel that we use to get that first sale. And we've never spent any money on paid advertising. So we had like a Facebook page. We had our Twitter profile. We told all of our friends. And then somehow some guy in Germany managed to find our site. And we're not ranking in Google for buying leggings at all by this point either. And then he comes on and he, and he buys. And I'm not 100% sure where he found us. But what I do know is that feeling that I got, well, that we all got when we helped someone by providing our products or service and received money in return so we could spend more money on helping people. That feeling is the reason that I'm here now with Virtual Valley. It's like amazing. Okay. So it's, you've created, it's basically you've created some value and put it into the world and then someone's not only seen it, took action with it and you've made them happy. And that's, yeah. Okay, that's a really good driving factor for kind of, I don't know, just for waking up in the morning and just doing what you do, it's, it's, it's a good reason. So at what point does Dragon's Den come across your radar? Uh, because I know that you and your other two co-founders were on Dragon's Den, and I enjoyed watching the clip of it again this morning. Yeah, I watched it when it went live. <laughs> oh, you watched it? Yeah, I watched it when it went live, and, yeah. um, and then I watched it again this morning just to re- kind of bring back that memory. So how did that come about? I'm just more out of selfish curiosity. I wanted to <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's similar to the bus story. I, I'm in bed on Boxing Day 2013, I think. So, so we'd had, had the company for a year, and I'm browsing on my iPad just through the internet. And I somehow land on Dragon's Den and see the applications are open. So in seven minutes, I just submit the initial application and we get, we get accepted. And I then have to go and tell my two co-founders that we're going on. Oh, we didn't get accepted. It's a long process, but they said we, they wanted to take our application further. So I then go and tell my two co-founders and they're like, no, I'm not going on TV in nail leggings. <laughs> so from then, I actually have to go through the whole application process, like loads of paperwork. I have to go to the BBC studios myself in leggings on my own to pitch to, to get us to the point where they actually accept us onto the TV. And then I have to persuade my uh, two co-founders to come. And actually, when you go to Manchester to film for a day and like you actually go in front of the Dragons, you're not necessarily going to get put on TV. So I had to persuade them to come up to Manchester to do the pitch and potentially we would get nothing from it. Wow. Um, so I, I guess it, it's a similar character trait to when we wanted to go to the market. Um, and I had to persuade like my friends to like buy these leggings and go and have the market store. That same character trait, I guess, it was shown when I had to persuade these guys to go on Dragon's Den. When you go on to Dragon's Den, the idea is 
obviously raise investment and then scale this business. Yeah. So give me an idea of what happened in that year and then why your other co-founders, but what were they doing? Were they, what's happening with the business? Is it part-time, full-time, yeah. growing? Uh, and then what did you think the benefits of Dragon's Den was? Was it the investment? Was it the exposure? What's the driving factors behind that? So all three of us are working full-time in London. So we're spending, we're investing maybe two hours a week on the leggings company. Okay. We have a person in the Philippines that handles admin and customer support. So interesting that how, how that leads on. And we are just designing the leggings and working out how to sell the leggings. In that first year, we sell 150 units. Okay. So one every two days. So like we're making money, but it's by no means interesting to a millionaire, billionaire like Peter Jones, right? Yep. So the idea for going on Dragon's Den, like even if we got the investment, I think if I got the investment now into the Leggings company, we would be able to do something with it. Back then, a year and a half ago, we probably wouldn't have known what to do. We were even considering any offer that they gave us, we would just reject purely to increase exposure. So in answer to your question, going on Dragon's Den, uh, two reasons. One was for exposure and for public relations and all the like amazing publicity it got us. But two... It was the same reason that we started the leggings business and went on that market store was just because it was fun. It's like something funny to tell, to talk about at the pub, right? No, that's great. And, and did it pop after it went live? Um, yeah. Like, like what happened? Being on TV in front of 2 million people in leggings like that was great exposure for the business. And we were like interviewed on radio shows afterwards. The leggings appeared on Loose Women, ITV3. Uh, so yeah, like great exposure and obviously an increase in sales, like not massive. In the first year, we sold 150. In the second year, we sold 450 units. In the year the Dragons Den came out, which was last year, we sold 850. Um, and this year, we'll, we'll probably sell 1,500. So yeah, yes, it is growing, but you can tell the impact it had wasn't massive. Like we didn't, we're not a global business selling thousands of pairs of leggings now, but it it definitely had a, an effect. No, that's great. And the thing that I wanted to try and pick up on from that is working two hours a week, each of the kind of the co-founders, but the support was done in the Philippines. How did that come about? How, how did you build that process? Because I know that a lot of people that are listening are probably in a corporate job and they're looking for a way mm-hmm. out and they're just not aware that there's services, just like Virtual Valley, that actually allow you to build a team around you that you can offload a lot of the kind of the day-to-day tasks to. Um, how did you build that process up? So I had obviously read Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, and it really resonated with me because I, my personality type, doesn't like detailed work. So if I have any opportunity to give detailed work away to someone else that is good at it, good at good at it and enjoys it, then I will do. Um, the other factor was that I had worked in outsourcing projects within Amsterdam Young and within Accenture, so I had a good understanding of the project management. They needed to surround outsourcing to make it work. So I had this passion for outsourcing. I had the, the skills to make outsourcing work. So we actually, there was a person in the Philippines that I had met when I'd been in the Philippines a few years before who was in online work. So I said, would you like to come and sort of support our legging company? Um, and she said, yes. And that was awesome. And yeah, we, we were released from that, the detailed tasks that none of us liked doing. And it was actually more profitable for us not to do that's perfect and then from there what happens obviously yeah. you now have got a good understanding you've got 
a growing understanding of, of business, of e-commerce, as well as in the background, you're building up processes that you can give away the detailed work to someone that one wants to do it and enjoys doing it. So you can go and work on other things. What happens next in the journey? So yeah, I'm after getting that feeling, selling the leggings to the person that I don't know, I, I have this buzz and I, it sort of confirmed that I didn't want to be in the corporate world. So I set about spending all of my spare time working out how I could leave the corporate world and replace my salary. And at the time, it was awesome with this virtual assistant with the leggings company. So I thought, why can't I package up this service and this feeling that I have working with her to give to other startups in London? So I started doing that and eventually provided this service where I would connect a startup with someone in the Philippines. But it's not a marketplace. That person was an employee of my company. And I would meet with the startup every week to talk about their systems and outsourcing. And I was like the middleman, right? So I, when we scaled to six clients, I had the revenue to leave the corporate world. But I was spending all this time working on their systems and not my own. And did so you, Sorry, yeah. did you feel comfortable doing that because of the, the um, consulting role that you did at Accenture? When, how do you get the confidence to walk into a startup, understand their process, and then be able to translate that um, into a document that you can then outsource to someone in the Philippines? Um, there seems to be a big jump from a corporate job, and it, I suppose I just want to kind of ask what was the corporate job and does it translate to, to that role? How did that yeah. happen? massively and sometimes i think back to my time in the corporate world i was like it was a waste of time like all i was doing it was for the money but the skills developed in the very first role i had in Amsterdam young i think made it very very easy for me to go and do that with those startups and that role so i, I was actually an it auditor in Amsterdam young for a year and a half so i was before a public company has to get audited financially an auditor like Anthony Young would have to send in people to check that the financial systems producing those numbers are managed correctly. So I was being sent around the UK to go to these large companies and to interview and speak to their IT teams to collect information. Okay. And so, so those skills that I built during that, like how to manage people, how to incentivize people to give you information, were probably really, really helpful when I was going to startups to understand more about their sort of systems and processes. Ah, oh, brilliant. Okay, makes complete sense now. And it's really, for me, it's interesting to know that a corporate role, I think it's a takeaway that I just want people to, I want to just drill home on that, is a corporate role is great education. Never look back on it in terms of it's a waste of time because you're learning on someone else's money at that time. As long, yeah. as, as, long as you can take those skills and translate them into something, it might not be directly, but you're going to have a lot of learning and then you can move them into your own startup. So you've got six clients. Mm-hmm you leave your corporate job, then, then what happens? Yeah. I sort of realized uh, 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 at this time I'm reading books like The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. And yeah, great book. Yeah. I've on the top of the cell. I can't remember the author. Um, uh, it's John I'm Wa- thinking it's, that... Sorry, it's John Warrillow. Yeah, we are literally on the same journey. Nice. It's John Warrillow, <laughs> Built to Sell. It's a great book for anyone that wants to learn how to build processes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, so, so I'm reading these books like Work the System by Sam Carpenter as well. And I'm like looking at my business and I'm like, this, I'm not an entrepreneur. I've just employed myself. So I'm like, at this point, I stop marketing that business and I take that money just like you did. And I start thinking about how I could automate this uh, to still add value to the clients, but make 
the business infinitely more scalable. So I actually started out trying to build a clone of a website called onlinejobs.ph. And it's a marketplace, but they charge the demand side a membership. So you can pay $49 and you can access this massive database of Filipino virtual assistants. Um, but once you're connected, there's no support beyond that connection. Okay. So I started off trying to do that. And, and midway through, I'm like, I don't want to just build a clone. I want to actually build something that's going to add more value and that could actually become a lot more valuable in itself. So I start investigating all the other freelancer marketplaces. And I find that the problem or the problem that I've had and the problem that all of my previous clients have had when trying to find freelancers on these large platforms is this there's a wealth, not a wealth, there's like a mass of, there's this uncurated database that makes it time consuming to find the right freelancer. So, so I decide to build a marketplace that every freelancer that comes on is curated and so that will enable an entrepreneur to hire and have more confidence in hiring and hiring in a much shorter time. And that brings us on to, I guess, exactly where we are today with Virtual Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a couple of questions. Marketplace, supply and demand. How are you sourcing? So you've got a curated marketplace. How are you going about one finding? And then what's the process behind the scenes that anyone that wants to use Virtual Valley should know about? That's going to add the confidence to the fact that your curated marketplace does take all the pain out of Upwork. And I've used Upwork. It is massively painful. I spend too much of my time trying to find the right person. Um, how, how are you actually helping me strip that back? So, yeah, we decided that when we launched Virtual Valley, uh, we wanted to have this curated database in place so when any entrepreneur came, they would be happy and they wouldn't come and find no one on the marketplace. Quickly, like the, the strategy behind that is, when I was researching about marketplaces and how to market them before we launched, uh, this one guy on an awesome blog called platform.info, he says that if you need to select the supply or the demand side that is easier, that has more value by coming to the marketplace, so that it's easier to get, and build that artificially. So when you do start bringing the side that is harder to get or more expensive to get, then you retain those people because they have a good experience. It's great advice. So we build up the supply side by manually recruiting, and we can link below to the recruiting process. Obviously, like I shared the whole thing on our blog, that we manually recruited 50 of what we believe to be some of the best virtual assistants in the Philippines, so that when we launched on January the 8th, any entrepreneur that did come, in theory, would be able to find a virtual assistant that has relevant experience for the role that they want and is really good. I think just to summarize, there's nothing worse than going to a party and being the only person in the room because <laughs> they're never going to come back. Now, it's, it's one of the problems that we, as a company, we've obviously experienced. Um, and I, I feel like I wish I'd read this article a lot sooner because we pivoted, we stumbled into what we're doing today and it's worked, but we probably could have saved a lot of time. So from listening to the podcast, um, Zero to Four Million, you drive mm-hmm. home the metrics of what you're tracking. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of, as we wrap this thing up, one thing that I wanted to dig into is one of the metrics that you're currently tracking. Mm-hmm. Your decision, I know you cover it in an early episode, the decision to a podcast. You cover it in episode one, actually, in terms of, the, the, I believe there were six reasons why you're doing the podcast. I want to see if that's having any impact to the metrics mm-hmm. and then where you see this going in the next 12 months. So run through the, the six metrics that you're currently tracking for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 
this was before January. I was trying to set goals for the year. And the metrics that I thought I could track that would give a good indication as to our success were monthly recurring revenue, amount of subscribers we have on our blog, the amount of guest content spots we have collaborated on, the amount of blog comments we have placed, the amount of Twitter followers that we have, both on my personal and the Virtual Valley accounts, and then the amount of working procedures that we have built. So they are the six. Now, I know that going forward in the next quarter, I'm actually going to change some of those metrics. And I think they, they served us well in our early days, but I don't think they're fully representative of the numbers that I think would give us the best picture of how the platform is performing okay so there's there's two things there for me when i when i heard the metrics that you were tracking i was automatically trying to work out how they all directly affected the bottom line because mm -hmm. that funnel each one of those metrics obviously we, we know needs to affect the mrl yeah so so you made the decision to track and kind of set goals before everything went live mm -hmm. um, why did you do that because at that point you don't know what matters apart from money in the bank which always matters mm -hmm. How did you come to the decision that those other five metrics would affect the bottom line? Yeah, these are really good questions that I need to ask myself. And I don't think that I, I was mature enough in my goal setting to select metrics to track that will affect MRR. I, I wanted to, I basically like painted this picture of where I wanted to be at the end of the quarter in terms of the amount of guest content spots we'd done, the amount of Twitter followers we had, how systemized our businesses were the working procedures. And so I, I painted that picture. I want to be here. And if we are here, I think that puts us in good stead for reaching the end goal of selling the company for $4 million. And then I, I, those metrics that I selected that I thought we would be at, I just then decided to track them. Because I know when you track numbers, you're more likely to get your, yeah, when you focus on metrics, you're more likely to improve them. No, exactly. I completely agree. Um, and what what I what I heard when you were discussing the metrics is the Q1 metrics you're still tracking diligently. Mm -hmm. You know where you are, but you're making changes going into Q2. What are the changes that you're thinking about, or what are you making, and why? Yeah. So one that I'm definitely going to include is the amount of hours that have passed through the platform. We have a mission to give back entrepreneurs a million hours of their time by 2018, and I think the only reason that we will be successful is if we, well, the only reason that we will be able to sell the platform for X amount of money is if we actually achieve that goal. So that's the one goal I'm not currently tracking. Okay. So we've just discussed the weekly metrics. We, we also have like daily metrics that I report at the start of each show, like they're going to change. And I think the core metric that will be tracked every day is how many hours have been charged. In terms of other ones that will change, like I'm going to stop tracking guest content spots and blog comments and Twitter followers. I, think they're just sort of almost vanity metrics for myself. Like I have been featured on this many blogs and we have this many followers, so I'm going to stop tracking them. I still want to track working procedures because that gives me a good indication of how sort of systemized our business is. And obviously I will track monthly recurring revenue. Um, I'm having a couple of days, I think this weekend, just to like lie down, drink green tea, like walk in the countryside to uh, determine the numbers that we really should be tracking. Okay, that no, sounds like a plan. And just just to lie down and green, drink green green tea, easy for me to say, uh, drink green tea. Mm -hmm. Comment is it's so difficult sounds to detach good, yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's so difficult to detach yourself day to day, isn't it? Once you start setting on 
you've, you've got these six metrics that you're tracking and then when you get in mm-hmm. you're just firefighting day to day and it's so difficult yeah. to kind of step back and say actually um i can't remember the name of the podcast i think it was called the fizzle show that talks about ceo mode and, and worker b mode and it's so different yeah. it's so difficult to move between them uh, and personal development for me is i've spent too much time doing worker b mode just doing the work and not thinking about the overall strategy of the business and looking at the things that really matter. And it's, mm-hmm. It sounds like what you're going to do is spend two days in CEO mode to make sure that when you exactly. come back in, you're working on the right stuff. Yeah, exactly. So zero to four million. Let's just cover off of this. You have a goal of selling this company for $4 million. How are you going to do it? So we need a certain number, monthly revenue, recurring revenue number that I believe if we hit, our company can be valued at $4 million. Now, that number, I think, is going to be very hard to achieve, but I think it's possible. So I believe that I have the, like, in the backdrop to the journey we've just discussed, I've been trying loads of different stuff with online marketing. I've, like, built up an online marketing skill set that I believe can bring that monthly recurring revenue number in terms of attracting entrepreneurs. Currently, what I'm not confident about is uh, the technology side. Okay. So I've built this platform with an outsourced team in Egypt. Currently, I'm just using freelance developers to make changes and small improvements. So I believe that in order to sell the business for $4 million, we need a technical co-founder who can be responsible for A, ensuring the technology works, B, implementing some marketing stuff that I think we need to do technology-wise, like affiliate and referral schemes. And then C, and most importantly, is actually building some sort of technology that will differentiate us from Upwork. Because currently, the only thing that we really have that differentiates us is this curated database. Now, I believe we'll be able to command a much higher selling price if we do build some technology that is completely different and can really, really help the entrepreneurs that we work with. Okay, and uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but episode 51 was a discussion that you had with a potential CTO. Correct. Uh, a potential co-founder, yeah, a guy called Don, who actually is a cus- client of Virtual Valley. And when he heard about this search, he got in touch with me. And he is he is one of the front runners, actually. And how much, obviously, we've got so, so many parallels in terms of the journey. I mean, we've actually just, your episode 51 about the CTO went live, I believe, a day after um, our uh, conversation with Martin regarding yeah. the difficulties we had with hiring a CTO. Um, I was outsourcing everything to a company in Sheffield. So I was I was outsourcing in the same way as you, apart from I was doing it in the UK, a lot more expensive. And yeah. there's no extra quality from being in the UK from some of the freelancers that we work with. Um, they just, <laughs> I should, my old uh, company's going to listen to this. The, currently, <laughs> the current freelancers that we work with just seem more diligent in what they're doing. Um, okay. So you're currently outsourcing everything. So you're kind of making your bed and line in it. Virtual Valley helps people outsource and build processes. What is the biggest impact to the business that you believe a CTO now is going to have? And why is it now that you're looking to implement it? It's now that we have the, I think, in total 15 paying customers on the platform, so we're still very small, um, that I don't feel confident that when floods when occur and they do happen, like when these small breaks occur, like no one has accountability for that, and no one is really driven to fix them and make it, to make sure everything's working. Like I personally can't jump into the MySQL database and PHP code to fix this. And a freelancer, yes, has the skills to do that, and is incentivized by cash that I pay them. But there's no real sort of belief in the mission and like buy-in in terms of 
that they really enjoy working with and like working with the product. Now, when I bring someone on who will get X amount of virtual value, they will have this, the same passion, I believe, that I have and that my manager in the Philippines has to really fulfill the mission of giving back that amount of hours. Completely agree. I mean, the business is your baby. No one that comes to work for the company is going to care about the business as much as you. Mm. It's just a fact. So actually what we covered off in our episode is I actually gave Ignacy, our CTO, more equity in the business than he asked for because I wanted him to have skin mm. in the game. He, nice. he, yeah, he undervalued himself. Um, we gave him more equity because I needed him to have enough skin in the game that if things weren't working, it would keep him awake at night. Um, he believes in, yeah, he believes in the vision, and as you touched on, super important. Um, so we, we, how did you quickly? Can I ask a question? Of course. How, how, how did you find your technical co-founder slash CTA? Yeah. So uh, we. Uh, like my gut says, go listen to episode 11, but we'll cover, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll cover it off now. Um, it was a site called Co-Founders Lab. I ended up having basically 35 dates with uh, developers, and it wasn't just... The the thing that made Ignacy stand out is the fact that he pushed back on a lot of my concepts and ideas and asked yeah. 100 questions before he committed. Um, and I think if unless you get in that pushback, I'm asking a lot from the CTO. I'm going to keep asking more and more as the company grows. I need to know that they, one, believe in the vision, and two, are prepared to push me back because as a team, we come up with ideas. Uh, and what I need from a CTO is belief in the vision, um, skin in the game, as well as not just caring about the line of code that he's writing and how it affects the business mission overall. If they don't put those two together, they're just not a good fit. Yeah. So you had 35 days. Like but you actually met with 35 people. I met with 35 people. Yeah. It's... Um, it's, it's He's, he's my work wife. Like, I actually probably speak and talk to him more than my current wife. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know why I said current wife is if I'm getting another one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I speak to him all the time. So it's such an, yeah, I just want to drive that home. It's such an important relationship bringing a co founder on. Um, yeah. Just take the time. Um, yeah, that's so I've probably had 12 dates, but they've all been on Skype. I'm actually going to London in a couple of days where I'm going to meet. I'm going to have some more dates. So, but not 35. But you're, you're an expert in this um, outsourcing and freelance world. You probably know how to use these communications over Skype and other services a lot better than me. For me, as a salesman, being face-to-face is so key for me. Yeah. It's probably just the backgrounds that we have. Okay, cool. Um, that's really useful, though. No, perfect. So, Tom, this, is, this has been amazing. Um, what You actually came up with a suggestion um, for the episode we recorded on your show, which is quick plug, zero to four million. Everyone... Go and listen. It's a day. I can't believe the amount of content that you put out. Go and listen to the backlog. Get yourself up to speed with Tom's journey. Um, I know it's going to be really exciting. And I want to do the same thing that we're doing uh, on your show is in six months' time, sit back down and see where you are. Mainly because you're putting the metrics out there. It's going to be so interesting to see the growth on these metrics. Um, do, you yeah. do, do you do an email newsletter or anything like that, Tom? Oh, no, but I definitely should. Um, I, would, I, I would love to get an email every day with just the metric growth. Up, down, just that, and then the latest episode. Um, that's really. I'm setting you. I'm setting you this challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm gonna. I'm gonna think about that this weekend. Perfect. So, where someone listen, someone that's got to the end of this um, is obviously an entrepreneur. They're obviously either in a corporate job, wanting to leave, or they're currently doing something. Where do they go to get involved with Virtual Valley? So, if you so if you do want a virtual assistant, you come to Virtual Valley and don't go through the database. I have my manager or one of our team on the customer service box. So bottom right-hand corner, you can just ask them, tell them what you're looking for, and we'll search the database for you. Um, we're tracking the journey on the blog. 
www.virtualvalley.io. And so I write a monthly review blog post each month. And also from there, that links to the podcast where 10 minutes every day, we just give a metric update and share one learning and one resource. So yeah, virtualvalley.io and blog.virtualvalley.io. It's perfect. Thanks very much for your time, Tom, and I'll speak to you soon. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Adam. As we mentioned before, you can find out more about Virtual Valley at www.virtualvalley.io and make sure to check out Tom's own podcast that you can and definitely should check out. It's called Zero to Four Million, a startup's bootstrap journey to a seven-figure exit. And you can grab that via iTunes. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on The Startup Diary.